All right, so let's get started. We are in uh, the latter part of Acts chapter 15. And the last few weeks, we have been talking about this concept of uh, the Jerusalem Council and the, the idea that, you know, these kind of rogue, um, and we'll be uh, gracious and say that maybe they were uh, zealous, uh, enthusiastic, young, and slightly misguided Christians. We'll, we'll kind of say that, and, and I've probably been all of those things at one point in time. And they uh, march on up to Antioch thinking that they've got it figured out and, and uh, tell Paul that uh, they're doing it wrong and that uh, people really need to be circumcised before they can become Christians. And they don't seem to be swayed by the fact that people were already saved who had not yet been circumcised. Uh, but in any event, Paul goes back to the Jerusalem Council um, to kind of set them straight. So I came across, a, as we're kind of wrapping up that that big event, um, one of the first big church conferences, I came across a quote that added a slightly different perspective on that, which I thought was really valuable. And it comes from the perspective of a leader in um, uh, a church um, uh, in a Hispanic country uh, that was uh, basically uh, uh, missioned to or that you know missionaries came to them but listen to this and listen we've talked a lot of times about our bias right and so this lets you hear um, how easy it might be for for us to have biases and and to really hear how this pastor saw the Jerusalem Council and how it applied uh, to his group of people and it uh, it says and I'm quoting here, the Hispanic church is a result of missionary adventures of the past. Some were more violent than others, some were more benevolent than others, but in all of them we learned to receive. We received missionaries, we received doctrines, we received ideas, we received money. In the midst of so much receiving, we are tempted to believe that we are somehow inferior, that the, that the important church is elsewhere the place where missionaries come from. The books worth reading are only those that come from over there. The models that we should imitate are the ones that have proven valuable in that other place. We poor little folk must forever be receiving. But no, the case of Paul, a Pharisee of Pharisees, and his contrast with these other Christians, equally Pharisees from Jerusalem, presents the matter in a different way. The place where we are, at the apparent edge, is where God is doing new things. And those who daily see the new things that God is doing in the world have the obligation toward God and toward the rest of the church to go back to the old centers, which often have lost much of their vision, taking to them our renewed vision of what God is doing today. I just thought that was really, really good. Um, that. You know, God can do a new thing to new believers with fresh eyes and fresh enthusiasm and fresh work and sometimes maybe draw them back really close to what his original intentions were. So I just thought that was a really good insight. And to give us a close-to-home example, uh, and this is, oh, I guess, a little bit off topic, but it, it, it makes the point. Um, I don't know... 
how many of you have been aware of um, the issues that the uh, Episcopal Church has gone through over the last 10 years or so um, across the world, but um, in our little corner of the world, especially um, with uh, the South Carolina uh, uh, folks, that many in the Episcopal Church became very distressed by um, the majority of, of churches, especially those, um, you know, and really all over except for the South, um, with respect to uh, homosexuality and especially homosexual leaders, uh, ordained pastors who were openly gay and, you know, the Episcopal Church is fine with this. Um, the greatest growth in the Episcopal Church proper, or let me, let me clarify, in what's called the Anglican Communion. So these are, there's lots of churches who trace their history back to the Church of England, the Anglican Church, um, the kind of the non-Catholic Catholic Church, you might think of it. Um, but the greatest growth in the Anglican community, or the Anglican Communion, and I must confess, I may mess up the terms a little bit because that's not the place where I dwell, but it's, it's fascinating. The greatest growth has been in places like Kenya and Uganda. And these churches in Africa have stayed very close to Scripture and have been extremely perturbed by some of the liberal leanings of the greater Episcopal and other parts of the Anglican Communion. I read that there are about 80 million people that could claim to be part of the Anglican Communion, which places it third largest among Christian associations. The greatest number would be the Roman Catholic Church, the second would be the Eastern Orthodox Church, and the third would be the Anglican Communion. Now, Protestantism is so um, multi-divided that maybe if we got it all together under one roof, we might be in there, in there somewhere. But um, about half of the Anglican Communion is in Africa. And the conservative part of this got wind of what was going on in the, the states and recognized that there were some conservative-leaning churches there so they came, representatives from Kenya and Uganda and some of these other countries, came to Charleston a few years back and led them to secede, in essence, from the Episcopal Church. So we're, here we have that from Africa of all places, a place that had clearly been missioned to, but had enough, you know, Holy Spirit-given wisdom to say, you know, these folks have strayed, but here's some brothers that are like-minded. And so, so a lot of the churches in the low country, the Episcopal churches in the, the low country of Charleston, uh, and, and Charleston along the, the coast especially, uh, broke off in Mainline Episcopal Church, and there's this other organization called the uh, uh, Anglican Church in North America, which is very conservative-leaning, and, and they have actually come under the leadership of some of those uh, African communions, and uh, it's just a modern-day illustration of what's been going on. Um, and if you follow it, it's very interesting. You can look it up online uh, where there was a, a, 
Supreme Court decision about who gets the property and all this sort of stuff. It's really fascinating if you've seen it. So, um, so being old doesn't always mean you're right, because uh, so we have to uh, we have to be aware of it. <coughs> it's not what I meant. Well, it's, cl- it's clearly not what I meant because uh, to most of the people I see, I'm old. So. No apple pie for you. Verse 36. So, when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter, and when they had read it, I'm sorry, this is verse 30. We'll, we'll go ahead. When they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Judas and Silas, we'll pick up, we're going to talk about Silas in a little bit, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others. Now verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So, if you look at your map, on the one called Paul's Second Journey, in the bottom right-hand corner, you see um, the dot there at Jerusalem. And if you go north, you see to Antioch, and that's where... Um, we pick things up and then you see the dot that heads north into the little orange territory called Cilicia and that's the direction that uh, Paul and um, Silas are heading and then if you it's not drawn on here because I don't know why we don't get a map that says Barnabas second journey but um, he uh, and John Mark head over across uh, the water there back to Cyprus, which you remember was Barnabas' uh, home stomping ground. So the big idea in this section is the, the disagreement between Paul and Barnabas as to, uh, as to what to do, uh, or where, who to, not just where to go, but who to take with them, and, and the, the, the big point of contention was do we take Mark with us or not? So let's go back briefly um, to Acts chapter 13, verse 13. We have a very simple verse that apparently had a little more meaning to it than I realized until I studied this. It says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Well, apparently, those two words, left, John left them, and returned, 
apparently these in the Greek that these words were the words that would be used in the military of someone who was going to withdraw after defeat from battle or of someone who was just frankly retreating. Those are the words that Luke used to describe what John did. So it wasn't just, you know, we speculated about the reasons why he left when we went through that passage, but, but apparently those two terms speak of, you know, there, there's a tone there. There's a, there's a judgment there uh, as to what was going on and, and uh, certainly a negative tone that, that John Mark did not, uh, uh, was not wise in what he did and it wasn't good that what he, uh, about what he did. So, so there's the, the disagreement. Verse 39, it says, and there arose a sharp disagreement. Another Greek word there, uh, one that I was familiar with, the word there is paroxysm. A paroxysm is just a violent sort of thing that's happening. I, I usually describe a paroxysm of coughing. And it's just somebody who is in my office and they are coughing so much and so badly, it's bothering me. I want them to stop coughing because of the effect it's having on me. Yes, I'm worried about them, of course, but it's really bugging me that they're coughing. These are the people that the family is calling it. You got to do something about this cough. I can't stand it because they're just coughing. They, they're just coughing, coughing, coughing. We call it a paroxysm of coughing. Paroxysm. So when it says the sharp disagreement, <clears throat> it was a sharp disagreement. There was a, a bit of a falling out of sorts. <clears throat> I think it's good that this got in here. Can Christians have a falling out? I venture to say it's probably happened. <laughs> it has probably happened at some point since this time. Just a, just a guess, but it's probably happened. So can you disagree and still be used by God? I think we've got evidence we're going to see in a little bit that, that you can. And actually, and it says in verse 33, going back a little bit, they were sent off in peace by the brothers. So it didn't take long after they were sent off, God bless you, go in peace, and next thing you know, just a few verses later, they're having this sharp disagreement. So they separated from each other. Sometimes that needs to happen. Sometimes you just say, you know what? We're not going to really solve this particular thing here. We've both got work to do. Let's just get on with it. Let's just get on with it. And that's, that's what they did. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. Paul chose Silas, departed. And I thought, um, I, I read a lot of different commentaries, kind of how they took this. Uh, one commentator says, uh, here were two dedicated men who had just helped bring unity to the church, and yet they couldn't settle their own disagreements. Disturbing and, and as painful as these conflicts are, they're often found in church history Yet God is able to overrule them and accomplish his purposes. And, and that's probably true. But if you think about it, maybe their agreement to part ways was settling it. 
and maybe when they parted it wasn't necessarily painful you know maybe it worked out the best um, analysis of this I think this might have been Dr. Wearsby but it'll be in the footnotes if you look at the supplementary material he says who was right and his next statement which we probably ought to say so often it really doesn't make much difference <laughs> He said, who was right? It really doesn't make much difference. And I think this was really insightful. He says, Paul looked at people and asked, what can they do for God's work? Is that a good thing to ask? Absolutely. He says, while Barnabas looked at people and said, what can, can God's work do for them? Is that a good thing to look at? I think it is. He goes on to say, both questions are important to the Lord's work, and sometimes it is difficult to keep things balanced. I just think that nails it right there. And I think that's generous to both of these early church leaders. It shows how a difference in your personality, a difference in your temperament, a difference in your relationship. Um, I've I, Maybe I knew this, but I, maybe I didn't. Um, I, I certainly had forgotten that Barnabas was Mark's cousin, right? So he's kind of looking out for his cousin, you know. Uh, but it just shows how you can come at the same issue with different experiences, different personalities, different observations, different concerns, and, and have a, a, a very reasonable and logical conclusion that just so happens to be very different from somebody else's reasonable and logical conclusion. Um, I just think that's, that probably happens more than we think, but we get so focused on if I'm right or not that we don't see the person's other side. I'm hoping that as they reflected on this, they probably got it. They probably reflected on this, and Paul, Barnabas said, you know what, Mark probably wasn't the guy for that leg of the trip, and and... Paul probably said, you know, I'm glad Barnabas had Mark to go help him. And, of course, we know that there was some reconciliation down the road. Um, but anyway, I, I really like, uh, like I said, I think, let me look back. Is it Dr. Wearsby? <laughs> very different. Very different. You know, you've got Paul the zealot. You've got Barnabas the encourager. You know, I, I totally agree with that. I will say this, that I think... Um, I was going to mention this toward the end, but let me go ahead and mention it now. Let me look at my notes and make sure I get this right. I put, it is wise and appropriate to consider whether a person is qualified for a particular task, and that was Paul was doing. And I said this applies generally, but especially in the church, and that just because a person is willing doesn't mean that they're the person for the job. Right? How many people have seen this? You don't have to raise your hand. <laughs> Yeah, and, and especially in churches. People volunteer, and what can you say down here in the South? Which, God bless them. I'm so, I'm so glad you volunteered for that. And the leader of whatever ministry is thinking, oh my gosh, what am I going to do with this person? The corollary, of course, is what happened to John Mark. There are times when the job is good for the person, and the person isn't good for the job. But I, I think it does matter because 
you don't need to pick someone who is only partially qualified, who needs to maybe grow. You don't pick them for the leader, right? You don't pick them for the leader. Um, so, moving on. Uh, where are we? Chapter 16. Hey, new chapter. Here we go. Verse 1. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. All right, so back to our map. We're in the orange. Anybody colorblind in here? Some? Okay. Um, it's the big part by <laughs> Cilicia. Uh, Derby and Lystra. All right, so here we are. Derby and Lystra. Paul's making his way. And a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was also a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Okay. I must confess, I don't get this. I do not get it. What was the message that they were delivering? Verse 4. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem, the Jerusalem Council. And what was that message? You do not have to be circumcised to be a Christian. That was a message. Verse 3. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews that were in those places, for they all knew he was fa his father was a Greek. What gives? So... Now, almost every commentator, in fact, I couldn't find any commentaries that agreed with me on this, which should be a clue. <laughs> okay. That <laughs> <laughs> I'm still growing into, into this. Um, every, I, I, I think... I'm not, I'm not sure. I didn't look at ever how many I have, but certainly the majority of commentators said something like this. The decision at the Jerusalem conference was that it was not necessary to be circumcised in order to be saved. Paul didn't allow Titus to be circumcised lest the enemy think he was promoting their cause. The battle in Jerusalem was over the truth of the gospel, not over the fitness of a man to serve. Paul's concern with Timothy was not his salvation, but his fitness for service. One went on to say um, that Timothy's situation was um, his mom was a Jew, his dad was a Greek. Um, it says, in their eyes, this still meant that he was a Jew, but the failure of his mother to circumcise him basically would be looked at as he was apostate. He wasn't a good Jew, and his mom should have taken care of this. People say, it, you know, say his father was a Greek, and people have speculated that his father maybe had died. Um, and 
the commentator says, Paul wanted to remove the stigma from the young man's status in the eyes of the Jewish community in Lystra, assuming he already planned to take Timothy along to replace John Mark, Paul could foresee Jews in every city he would visit raising the circumcision issue. And then, of course, we know in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 9, where Paul says, to a Jew he became like a Jew to win the Jews. Paul was laser-focused on anything that was going to be an impediment to spread the gospel. I get that. But part of me wants to say, why didn't Paul just tell them to get over themselves? <laughs> if he's really going to stand for principle and say, it's not necessary for conversion, is it really necessary for ministry? Uh, just, uh, it bugs me. I, it, all I can say is it bugs me, and I don't get it. But, I get it. I mean, I get it that he was really focused on that. It just seems like giving in to me, you know? I, it's on my list to ask one day. <laughs> and maybe that's just, I, I don't know. You know, I, I really, I kind of like things that are on principle. If you're going to take such a big stand, you know, why didn't you just follow through a little bit? Um, He did not have Timothy's back. He had his front, which was not good. <laughs> Sorry. Don't get it. Chapter 16, verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. Do you plan it so that I have to pronounce all the places? <laughs> you know what I do, I just skip. <laughs> but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, to the map. Derby, Lystra, and Iconium, they're in that kind of right-hand side of the, of the uh, territory there that's all colored orange to most of us. And it says they keep trying to go into Asia. Now, what we call Asia was not what Luke is calling Asia. Okay, that's part, if some of you are a little confused. There was a province. This province was called Asia. That little section was called the province of Asia. So when it says that they couldn't enter Asia, that's what they were talking about. So they're kind of going around it to the north. Okay. They go to Mysia, then they're going to Troas. And I don't know what their plan was, but that's when they get the, um, the word that, that, okay, we're heading to Macedonia. And you see, Macedonia, they got to cross the water again. So this is like leaving Asia, and this might be considered Europe. So now the gospel is making it across the water there 
to Europe. Okay? The Macedonian call. Now, what fascinates me about this passage is, you remember the whole Great Commission, right? Going to all the world, blah, blah, blah. But then God says, oh, but not there. Don't, no, I don't want you to go there. Right now. Right? And I just, I just think that's interesting. Right? So, just because you got a good idea that seems consistent with the plans of Scripture, definitely would be within, you know, kind of the, the scope of what you would call the will of God. Is it the will of God to go disciple and go to all the different parts of the world? Absolutely. That was command. You know, is he doing all the right thing? Yes, he's doing it, but then God said, you know, it's just not that, it's just not time. It's just not time. I just think that's interesting. Um, look at what else is interesting. We have, you know, we haven't talked about the Holy Spirit in a few chapters. Um, here's the Holy Spirit saying, you know what? Don't go there. It says, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word. I don't know what that was like. I don't know if, you know, the camel died and they interpreted that or if, if the Holy Spirit just spoke to them. Um, I don't know how that happened. And then Paul uses, I mean, um, Luke uses this other phrase on the second occasion, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. I'm not sure that I've heard that name for the Holy Spirit anywhere else, but we're talking about the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus. So look at all the, the people that are mentioned here. We've got the Holy Spirit, we've got Spirit of Jesus, and then at the, at the latter part of verse 10 it says, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So you've got all the Trinity there that are involved with this. And um, so I think that's interesting. So you can think about, what does that say about timing and willingness and being submissive to God's plans and and um, our own patience, you know, and um, being willing to be flexible. But yet, Paul didn't just like head on back to Antioch, just kind of kept going, right? Well, okay, can't go here, can't go there. Anybody have a Roomba? Those little vacuum cleaners, you know, if they hit something, then they back up and then they go somewhere. Little robot vacuums are really cool. <laughs> they just kept going. They're too expensive, but they're really cool. Verse 11. So, setting sail from Troas. So this is when they, they cross over, right? Setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, a little island there. Apparently it's got some fascinating history. They think Poseidon used to live there. Uh, really fascinating little island. And then following day to Neapolis. And Neapolis was on the coast there. That's the port city. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. Now, a lot of people have found fault with Luke because apparently Philippi was a, a nice cosmopolitan place. There was a lot going on in Philippi, but it was not considered the main city of the area uh, back in the day. But people think Luke was from Philippi. So he's like just sticking up for the hometown, right? He said, it's, yeah, this is the main place, my, my hometown, Philippi there. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. 
the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged us to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Lots of stuff here. Um, in fact, we may have to come back next time we're together and talk a little bit about it. But um, city of Thyatira was in the province of Lydia. So here we have Lydia from Lydia. And some people said that that might have meant that she had actually been a slave because it was a, it was a thing where you would not uncommonly name the slave for where they had come from. So that'd be kind of interesting, right? So you got a slave who has come out of slavery, so got out of that, was working in the dye industry, which was kind of like Simon the Tanner. It was a messy thing, but yet was good enough about it to become a businesswoman was a God-fearer. There wasn't a synagogue there. There weren't 10 male-led households. You had to have 10 to have a synagogue. There wasn't a synagogue in Philippi. So here you have this group, mostly women, by the banks of the river there, worshiping God like they usually do. First thing they hit town is find all these other people that are worshiping God. Let's minister to them. And sure enough, they convert from their Jewish belief to know Jesus and to accept him. And immediately... Um, she's baptized and her household uh, also believed and then she says come to my house and stay so if you think about this nowadays there's a lot of talk about you know the value of immigration and immigrants and working your way up and all that I think that's fascinating to think about God used her and apparently she must have been um, uh, a pretty good businesswoman a lot of people think that she was maybe a major benefactor uh, to uh, uh, Paul's ministry. In fact, he talks uh, later um, about to the people in Philippi, you guys were the only ones that met the needs that we had at this particular time. So a lot going on there. We'll have to talk about more, but we'll have to wrap it up. All right. Let's quit. Father, uh, we thank you for the way that you work with us when we disagree with each other. We thank you that you keep working with us when we don't understand things and things don't make sense. We thank you for Paul's example that he could keep the main thing the main thing and help us understand maybe when we need to do that ourselves. Father, I thank you for uh, people who are giving us fresh perspectives because you're working in their lives in fresh and new ways and give us humble hearts to discern uh, whether we are staying true to what you want us to do. Father, help us to keep pushing even when the doors might seem closed and help us to keep open eyes for where you want us to go next. We thank you for Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen. Thanks, everybody.